Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show takes guests in the barrel, behind the scenes with the people who've been there, done that, and seen the results. Revenue Builders covers best practices for scaling and growing your business while sharing the pitfalls to avoid. Great conversation, solid interviews, tangible takeaways to help you succeed. If you enjoy the content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Hello, and welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John Kaplan, here with my great friend and world-famous five-time CRO and author of the best-selling book, The Qualified Sales Leader, John McMahon. Johnny, how are you, dude? Doing good, bud. Thanks for the... uh warm intro. I appreciate it. My pleasure, buddy. My pleasure. So, so Johnny, today we're bringing our listeners a special conversation with a gentleman that exemplifies passion, courage, honor, commitment, and resilience. Uh, Ambassador Masood Khalili is a famous Afghan freedom fighter uh, in the war against the Soviets from 1980 to 1990. He was the political head of the Jamia E. Islami Party of Afghanistan and close advisor to Commander Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was known as the Lion of Afghanistan and military commander of the Northern Alliance. He was a special envoy in Pakistan for President Rabbani. He later became the ambassador to India, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Turkey, and Spain. Ambassador Khalili is a beautiful spirit of a man He is the son of a famous poet laureate. He's an accomplished author, wrote an amazing book that we're gonna talk about called The Whispers of War. And as you will see, a very accomplished and sought after speaker. So we gotta ask the question, why and how do we get Masood on our podcast? And so Johnny, I need to take you back to the year 2000. I was living in Frankfurt, Germany, working for PTC. Uh, There was a big global deal uh, that I was working on that needed to be negotiated in New York. And so while I was waiting at the gate to board the flight, a huge commotion broke out at the airport. Suddenly, there were about 30 heavily armed military guards that plowed through the terminal surrounding a man. Uh, It was clear that this was a very high profile individual. And it was also clear that the Germans were bent on making sure that he boarded that plane unharmed. Um, That individual turned out to be President Rabbani, uh, who was the leader of the Northern Alliance when the Taliban was brutally dividing the country. Um, Sadly, uh, he was assassinated in 2011, so I had a little bit of uh, reason (laughs) to be concerned while I was... uh, uh, watching this all unfold, but there, there were another five to six individuals, Johnny, who who looked in incredibly serious, uh, and they were following that military convoy, and they boarded the plane as well. And uh, so, you know, at the time, there was conflict all over the world, and and it was just kind of it just left me with a lot of anxiety watching all this happen as they were boarding my airplane. And so, I was the first non-escorted passenger to board the plane, and. To my, uh, if I could call it surprise, to my great surprise, I see that the five other guys uh, 
are now sitting in my row. Uh, my mind was going all over the place. Uh, I looked around for the white bearded dude and realized that he was up on the top of this. You know, remember Johnny in the old Lufthansa 747? She had that, that top compartment, right? And that's where I thought actually I was going to be sitting because the amount of travel I was doing back in the day. But that's where this dude was up with his with his guards. And so I'm sitting there tense. Nobody's talking. Uh, and, and the next thing that happened just blew my mind. <clears throat> we begin to take off. And the, the guy next to me gets up while the plane is motoring down the runway, Johnny. Uh, he actually gets up from his seat and goes into the bathroom. And I'm losing my mind. I'm like looking around and I'm like, did anybody, does anybody see this? Uh, not a single steward or stewardess is looking. And I'm like, what in the world is happening here? Uh, and the guy comes back smooth as silk after about 10 minutes, which I'm sure, I don't know if it's 10 minutes. It felt like 30 minutes. And he sits back down cool as a cucumber. He sits right next to me. I'm sitting there rigid in my seat for like 30 minutes with my mind was spinning and he didn't speak to me and I didn't speak to him. And so finally, I just decided to take out my laptop and get some work done. And I'm going through my emails. And before I know it, this dude is looking over my shoulder, reading my emails. And I, I could not stop myself. I whipped my head around and I actually looked at him and I said, hey, can I help you? And uh, he, he answers me in a stunningly beautiful voice and apologized for being nosy. Um, he saw the PowerPoint presentation. Uh, it was from a PowerPoint presentation from uh, Colin Powell, General Colin Powell. And he commented on how he respected uh, Colin Powell so very much. And so Johnny, the door was open for a conversation and I, I dove right in. So I started off with the typical Kaplan questions. So who are you? Who is the guy in the upper deck? Why does he need all that security? And of course, am I in danger on this flight? <laughs> and uh, uh, the man obviously was Ambassador Masood Khalili. He was traveling with President Rabani and his entourage to New York to take part in the 50-year anniversary to the United Nations. Uh, Masood had traveled many times to the U.S. and several times found himself at the White House alone with a U.S. president and a leader from Afghanistan acting as a translator. His stories were amazing, Johnny. He talked nonstop for over five hours. I started my journey believing I had nothing in common with this person sitting next to me, and the flight ended with a friend for life. He is a father like me with hopes and dreams for his children. He's an incredible man of faith. He loves his country with all his heart and soul, and on several occasions nearly gave his life in battle and assassination attempts. So, Johnny, the story of our friendship's kind of wild how it developed, but we left each other on that day in 2000, committing to stay in touch with all the best intentions. He went on to fight to save his country from the ravages of the Taliban and I went on, you know, trying to settle my family back in the United States after being on an assignment for five years in Europe. So when I, you know, a few years later, I'm unpacking a box in Charlotte and I come across the business card that he gave me. Uh, and I actually remember smiling, remembering the conversation. And I'm like, man, so much has happened since I talked to this dude. Let me Google him. So I Google him and 
I was heartbroken by what I read. And there was literally hundreds of articles about Masood. So Johnny, on September 9th, 2001, uh, Ambassador Khalili was sitting next to the hero of Afghanistan, Commander Shah Masood, when two Al-Qaeda assassins posing as journalists set off a bomb placed in their camera. The camera was, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the commander was killed and Ambassador Khalili survived, but with massive traumatic injuries. Two days later, Al-Qaeda attacked America. So I felt so bad that I hadn't, you know, stayed in touch and was heartbroken to read about this guy's brutal injuries and long recovery. So I found an email address on the internet, took a chance, reached out to him, and to my amazement, he wrote me back. And for the past years, Johnny, we have been friends. He calls me his dear sky friend. My family knows about him and his family. And his family knows about me and mine. And it's, it's one of my most cherished relationships. So, Johnny, when we started this podcast, we knew we're going to talk to sales leaders and C-suite executives. But we also wanted to broaden the conversation. Our goal has always been to bring our listeners incredible people with incredible stories that we can all learn from. And Masood Khalili is exactly that kind of person. Absolutely. Good, good intro, Johnny. I want to maybe be a little more explicit for some of our listeners, especially maybe some of our younger listeners. So Khalili was the, really the right-hand man to the lion, and the lion was Ahmad Masood. And the lion you know, led the Northern Alliance and they fought against the Soviets from 79 to 89. And then what happened is actually uh, Masood Khalili, who's on the podcast, discussed how before you enter a war, this is really powerful, you have to have a vision. And we've all seen what happens when countries enter wars, but they don't have a vision for what happens afterwards. Mm. And he has a com his comment, if you don't have a vision, you can win the war, but lose peace. And that's exactly what happened after they defeated the Russians, because the war with Russia ended in 1989. But that opened the door for the Taliban and Osama bin Laden to enter Afghanistan. So again, Afghanistan lost peace. And the Taliban, you know, they were backed by the Pakistani army and, and uh the International Services Intelligence Agency of Pakistan. So what's also interesting is that, to me, that in their culture, people defer to age. But when Masood Khalili, he was older than the lion, but he yeah. let the lion lead. He could tell that the lion was an old soul and determined in his ways and that he had a vision. I think the other thing that... Um, like you said, that Khalili came to meet the lion two days before the bombing, the suicide bombing. It's almost like he had a premonition of what could happen. And, you know, as you noted, his father was not only Afghanistan ambassador to the United States, but he was widely recognized as the most famous Persian language poet. Many viewed his father as the greatest contemporary poet of the Persian language of it in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So 
it was a tradition in their culture to open a book of poems and look on a random page and let your eye fall on a random passage on the page. So when Khalili sat next to the lion the night before the suicide bombing, they opened up the, the book of Havez and they read mm -hmm. the following passage. Oh, you two who are sitting tonight together value this night. Many years will pass. Days will go. Months will disappear. You won't have this night again. So value it. Chill bumps, Both of dude. them were stunned and none of them spoke in the next day, as you referred to two suicide bombers posing as journalists in Belgium, you know, came into the small hut where the lion was sitting with Masood Khalili to his right and a few other close confidants. The bombing occurred. Everyone else was killed except Masood Khalili, who we're speaking to today. So, I mean, what an amazing story and what an amazing man that we're going to hear from right now. Yeah, Johnny, we'll put some of those stories that were written about that fateful day and the story between him and the lion. We'll put that in the show notes. And But it's an incredible story of leadership and passion for a cause told by one of the most interesting and articulate individuals that, that I've ever met. So... Um, yeah. It's a great conversation. Uh, I hope those of you that are listening out there enjoyed as much as we did. Here yeah. it is. Yeah, I got one more thing I want to add, Johnny, just before we do that. Is after I listened and we did the you know recording with Masood Khalili, you know, there's a saying that when people face hardships, they can get bitter or better. Mm. And Khalili certainly has every reason to be bitter with the many hardships that he's faced in his life. But after learning about him and listening to him, it's evident that he's gotten better as time moved on. So I hope everybody enjoys this as much as you and I have. Powerful, Johnny. Take a listen. Johnny McMahon, it's my great pleasure to introduce you to my dear friend and sky buddy, Masood Khalili. Say hello to Masood, Johnny. Hey, Masood. We are really, really excited to have you here and really Super excited for our audience to hear your story, which is an unbelievable story. So thank you for doing this. We really appreciate it. My honor, my pleasure to be here with you. And I hope that my story reaches to the heart and the bedrooms of those who watch me. No doubt. No doubt about it, Masood. And I hope I'm not going to offend you or anybody around the world. Um, you said that you would allow us to call you Masood because we're friends, but obviously your title is Ambassador Khalili. And uh, again, we're so, so honored to have you. I thought we'd get started and just kind of talk about your <clears throat> growing up in Afghanistan and all the hopes and dreams that you have as growing up in Afghanistan. And you are thrust into a world of having to become a freedom fighter. Could you just kind of share with us a little bit, like what that was like for you being a young man and, and, um, and just being kind of thrust in that world to have to, you know, protect your country. Uh, well, yeah, it's a long story, but I make it as short as possible. Though old people cannot make stories short, but I try. <laughs> I have the same problem, so. <laughs> no, you're young, but okay. I'm, you know, mostly my wife telling me that. Make it shorter. 
But anyway, anyway, when you're young, you make it very short. Yes. But what happened that I was in India studying political science. My father was ambassador to, to Iraq at that time. He was a poet and a writer. And I was doing my PhD, John, in St. Stephen College. And I was so happy that I had done already my BA and MA, and I, on, I was on the way to go to Afghanistan and be, indeed, if not a diplomat, first a professor at the university. That was yeah. my goal. Yeah. And then the communists took over those days, and the Russians started to come. 1979, we're probably Nine, talking right around that. that. that 1978. Eight, yes. <laughs> 1978, long time before. But anyway, anyway, since thank God it passes so fast. So you remember. Anyway, my father called me. It was hard at that time to call, but he called me and I, he told me, what you do, son? I said, dad, I'm doing my PhD. He said, what is that? He said, that is something in Afghanistan, maybe not more than 50 people have it now. And your son will have he said, well, do you know that Russians have come and the communists took over and you're still doing PhD? I said, yes, yes. Where else I can do my PhD? He said, go to Afghanistan, son. The war will start it. And I said, what about my PhD? He said, take your PhD from the mountains of your country, from the university of your people who are fighting for their freedom. I put the pen on the table, believe me. That was my hostel. And I just started to write the first diary that I had. That that you told me, God knows what happens, but I go because of two things. Number one, my faith to God. Number two, my faith to freedom. Number three, advice from my father. <laughs> so these three pushed me and I went to the mountains of my country. That is the starting point, John. Now, your father, your father is at this time, not only one of the most beloved poets of the, of like, you have to explain, it's not just a Persian poet, but he's a famous poet, famous writer. He's a diplomat, but wasn't he also a military officer? No. Okay. No, he has never been. He okay. was a lauded poet, and he was known in the eastern countries, especially in my neighboring countries. But he was in two, three, I think, wars in Afghanistan. Okay, yes. And this is why he told me to go and join. Yes. And so you start this, this journey. And we're going to talk a little bit for our listeners about, you know, leadership and commitment and groundswell and resilience. And you are introduced to a gentleman, not unlike you, who has hopes, dreams, wants, desires for his country, for his life. And you are introduced to Ahmad Shah Massoud, who became world famous and, and, and is also known as the lion. 
Could you talk a little bit about how you began that relationship and how he was also kind of thrust into um, a leadership role? He was younger than me, five years. He had his education until high school. He just entered the college that the war started. So when I went to Afghanistan, they knew me. They knew my father. And also since I was uh, uh, in the radio Afghanistan when I was 17 years old and declamating poetry. And I had three beautiful programs in radio Afghanistan. And one of them was Whispers of, uh, of, uh, of the Night. So uh, it was uh, uh, nine o'clock in the night. But anyway, they knew me. And I, when I went into Afghanistan to the mountains, because I could not go to the capital of Kabul, I could not go to other capital provinces. I went to Afghanistan, my first trip to the mountains of the country, because I was born in Kabul, John. Yeah. And I did not know the villages. So that was a kind of like Christopher Colum discovery of my country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that how my country looked, how beautiful it was. Hmm. What a great people, especially common people, you know? Yeah. And then when I saw him, he was young, about 23, 24 years old, something. And the first thing he told me that Khalili Saib, he was calling me Saib, Khalili we will fight against the Soviets and it will take time. I said, well, well, of course it takes time. But then when he talked a little, I wrote in my diary that night in the mountains, in one of the caves of the mountains, that, well, this, I wrote, boy, this boy has a great determination and also he believes in God in a moderate way. Also, he believes in freedom. And above all, he believes in the power of the people. Yeah. The way he was talking, like, he didn't tell me that he believes in people, he believes in God. No, no, not these things. No, he was just saying very humbly. And, and then that was the start of our, you know, first meeting. And I told him that, okay, you do the work in Afghanistan inside. I go back and forth to the world. You mobilize your people. Uh, and I do mobilize also my people. But sometimes I go to the world and mobilize the world because they do not know Afghanistan. Yeah. In yeah. California, they don't know about Kabul. <laughs> yeah. no. I was going to say, you referred earlier that he was five years younger than you. But what I've read is that in your culture, most people defer to age. So you were older than the lion, but you decided to let him lead. So what was it about him that made you comfortable enough to have him lead? That's a very good question. I tell you that. Still, it's going on. The older, the better. At that time, I don't know what happened. I was not that smart to see that he will be a leader one time. Hmm. He will lead my country to a large extent. 
I could not see it. My vision was that not that clear as it is not that clear now too. And at that time, when I wrote in my diary, I said something I saw in him and what it was, charisma. He attracted me. When you have charisma, you get the walls around you. If you don't have charisma, if you're Plato and Aristotle, you cannot catch the wall. So the charisma of this man attracted me. And number two is determination that, yes, he will do it. And five years is not also not too big, too, you know, but we were in yeah. the same generation. And I thought that he is not educated well. And he does not know the language except a little bit of French, maybe, because he was in the high school with the medium of French. And then I thought we need the world behind us. And I told him, go on inside, do whatever. We will do it together. Mobilization of the people, mobilization of the world. His charisma, John, indeed, led me to accept him as the leader. Now, he was on a mission to, you know, defend Afghanistan against the Soviets. And as a leader, what, when you met him, he knew who you were. But why did he trust you to be so close to him, be basically his right-hand man? Very good. Number one, he knew my father very well. Mm -hmm. And he knew that his family knew my father and my grandfather. These things are important in Afghanistan. Mm. My grandfather was the second man in the country, but he was hanged by the son of the one who was his king, you know. So, and that's another story that why he killed him while he was the second man of his father. Number two, that he knew me also very well. In the radio, as I mentioned, we had the only radio in Afghanistan. No TV, no other station, but Kabul radio, which I loved it. And everyone had one thing, new generation, the young boys and girls, to go at nine o'clock and listen to the poetries I was reciting and others, of course. I'm a little bit selfish. I talk too much about myself. But anyway, this is the time that I talk about myself. Anyway, and then he immediately thought, oh, you are here. So good, Khalili said, that we all do together. Mm. And whatever you say, we will do it. And then, of course, he had that charisma and the talent and the destination, I mean, not the destiny to be the leader. And he became the leader. He had... He had so many examples in the 14 years that he was, you all were fighting against the Soviets. You only had four years of a brief respite uh, from, I think it's 92 to 96 before you then had to engage with the Taliban. And throughout those years, he had charisma. And I've read so many stories how like the enemy thought so many times that they had him and they had Afghanistan and, and, um, and they just, they just couldn't do it. What, what do you attribute that to the, the resilience, the, the perseverance? What, what is it just, is it just 
the the moment of time and you're thrust upon it. I, I I like to read that story and say, ask myself, I don't know if I could have done that. I don't know if I could have lasted 14 years. I don't know if I could have withstood that and and then led in those environments. Looking at in totality his his number of years, what are some other things that you saw in him that just allowed him to be so successful doing what he was doing? Well, uh... Besides what I told you, John, one thing which is in every individual in the world, in you and in John and in every American, maybe, love of the country. Yeah. You love your home. And when you love someone or something, John never asked why. Yeah. Love does not need logic. Love needs sacrifice. Yeah. Love of the land, whether it is Kabul or Kiev, it needs sacrifice. And he was ready to sacrifice. Yeah. And he was looking at his, the masses of the people that they were more determined, they were more resilient, they were more, you know, uh, lovers of the country and of their faith. And the people were watching him. He was watching people. They were being inspired, and we all were being inspired by each other. In my book, you have read it, you see the stories of these common people, how they indeed lead the leaders mm. to be A, honest, B, trusted, C, never, ever allow yourself to forget your heart. Mm. If yeah. you have your heart with you always, whether you're a big company or small company, with a new technology or not, but your heart leads you for good and for bad. Be careful. That is why yeah. I was with him. Yeah. Now, Masood, I also read where you said, and I thought this is an interesting quote, if you don't have a vision, you can win the war, but lose peace. Can you, can you tell me more about that powerful quote? If you don't have a vision, you can win the war, but lose peace. Wow. Thank you, John. Thank you. It's so painful also. When I was a student and I was in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an apartment with a Christian lady, Mrs. Biswas, she was around maybe 70 years old, and I was very young, and she told me that, do you know English? I said, no, because she was asking me, how are you? I was saying, yes. What's your name? I was saying, no. I mean, so I didn't know English. <laughs> <laughs> and then the lady told me, I teach you English, but I said, what is that but? She said, I'll teach you through Bible. I said, oh, my goodness, he converts me into Christianity now. No. And then I called my father. And my father told me, son, he laughed. And I said, look, father, I have to learn English through Bible. He said, son, listen to this poem. I said, what is that? He said, I just bring it into my mind now that uh, the meaning is this, that never, ever ask what you read, read it and get the content 
And if it is useful, go on. Never fight. We are all the same. Your blood and a Christian blood is both threat. Believe me, I'm not making it. And he said, I said, yes, but tell me that. Should I go? He said, yes, go. This is the best chance. And there I read one sentence. I don't know which chapter it was. The one who does not have vision shall perish. It was in my mind, but I didn't use it. What happened? When we were fighting against the Soviets, we did not have that vision to see when we reach Kabul, what we will do and what will happen. You reach to your goal. Since you did not have or do not have vision, what happens? We reached Kabul and we won the war. People applauded. People appreciated. People were happy. But we lost peace. And until now, we have lost that peace because of the lack of vision at that time. John, go on, please. I see. I see. In, in your job, Masood, throughout this whole process, it's so prophetic for me thinking about this is as you're learning about your country and you're on a donkey going across the mountains because it's the only way for you to travel and you're going into all these villages and they are... They have their own kings, for, for lack of better translation. They have their own lords. They have their own. What's so amazing to me about what you all had the ability to do, and in the poorest of poor, I saw this quote, and I saw you react to it. It was amazing to me. Somebody asked you just recently, as the turnover officially from the United States pulling out, and uh, an Indian reporter said, uh, Ambassador Khalili, um, how do you feel about the um, Taliban getting control in Afghanistan? And you interrupted her and you said, they do not. They might control the land, but they do not control the people. And it just gave me chill bumps when I thought about it. And I think that was a major strategy for you that was your role in the war is keeping the people together from villages that you hadn't even been to before. So can you talk a little bit about that, of your experience of just going to the different villages and getting people to unite in something bigger than themselves, bigger wow. than their own village, but the villages that connect all the way to Kabul wow. is how you really won the war. Oh, John, thank you. Again, a long story. As I told you, I discovered my country, not just by my eye, but through the help of my donkey. Yeah. Well, 23 times, I, with my donkey and sometime on foot, traveled all over my country, to all the mountains. When I say to all, I mean it, to all the mountains. From one mountain to another, from one valley to another, from one village to another. But above all, John, from one heart to another. Yeah. So I saw poor people all on my way. But I did not know, did not feel that they are poor because they were so much contented that I said the richest, the richest in the world. 
they don't have food for themselves, but they share it with me. What a generosity it is. You're generous. You're the king of this world and the other world. You're not. Then you'll have problems. So in those villages, I was with people, men, women, boys, girls, and I saw so many things. Again, thanks to my donkey. Saw so many things in, in those that I found no one thing I was always writing in my diary. I've got 42 notebooks, all diaries to my wife. In the mountains, I was writing sometime each hour because, you know, I had to. And now I'm trying to publish all I'm working on, if possible, to get it to the people. And especially anyway, for I was discovering one thing, John, that when I, John, I, I, I address both of you. Um, yes. Yes. And, uh, and I discovered that, no, when you have people, you have everything. And if you don't have people, you're lost, whether you're in a company or whether in a country. No doubt. You, you have your followers. And number two I found in them was that, well, something you should have in your heart that leads you in the diff- most difficult times, in the darkest nights, and that is hope. Yeah. And those people, poor people, had the richest value, and that was hope. You have the whole world. You don't have hope. You die every minute. If you have nothing but you have hope, you live forever. Now, Ukrainians live forever. I mean, those who die, so he had hope. If he had hope in his mind and heart, he never dies. Because to the last moment he thought, I will defeat my enemy. I wish there were no war. I'm not with war. I'll tell you later. I did all these things, not that I loved war, John. I did because I loved peace. Yeah. No, never, ever I liked it. So in those, this hope gives me also a strength. That, okay, talk about hope, write about hope. And give more hope to our people when you are with them. And then the third thing, besides hope, I found one thing else, which was also important, is that the common people, John, were great Muslims, but not Islamists. They were not fanatic. Yeah. And when I was talking about, many stories come there, when I was talking and one day I was with my donkey and I, you know, and I, I, I told my, the man who was there, that very poor man taking care of my donkey. And he told him that, look, uh, do you, how many donkeys you know in, in your life? And you know the donkey of Jesus? Because donkey of Jesus is very important to us. Very, the most important donkey in the world or animal in the world is the donkey of Jesus. I've got mm. the longest story, but anyway, maybe he had, the only, the only thing he had was a donkey. I don't know. But here, I told him, do you know the donkey of Jesus? He said, what do you talk about? If I am not, if I don't know the donkey of Jesus, then I'm a donkey myself. Wow. I know the donkey of Jesus. Don't say Jesus. Say, peace be upon him. He's not your cousin. I said, oh my goodness. Yes, he's not my cousin, but I know. 
And I looked at in my diary. Oh gosh, look at this. This man has got maybe $1 even less a day to take care of his donkey. His donkey takes me to the mountains and gives him food because I hired a donkey. It's not a, it was my rolled rice, you know, it was not a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a kind of Uber for me at that time. I was thinking <laughs> Anyway, that fanaticism was not there. Yeah. yeah. So love of the land, hope, faith, and lack of fanatic, or, or thank God, not being fanatic. Yeah. That's what I learned from my people. Go on, please. So, Masood, so I want to go back to the quote that you had. If you don't have a vision, you win war but lose peace. Did you also mean that, like, after the end of the war with Russia that ended in 1989, that that might have opened because you might have lost peace, as you referred to, that might have opened the door for the Taliban and Osama bin Laden? That's right. A good question, no doubt. When we entered Kabul, we really won the war, but we lost peace. Why? A, the war started in Afghanistan. Some other groups started to fight against us. Uh, some Afghans. And then Al-Qaeda people. And then Taliban emerged. Because the war started in Kabul because of the lack of the vision and peace was lost. Mm. Everybody was there to fight and get power. As, for example, if now in Ukraine there are four or five groups and the minute the Russians leave, then they start fighting against each other in yeah. Kiev. Ah, so yeah. the vision is that if you have vision, you should think that, okay, if they leave the country and they are defeated, what should we do now to not lose war, to not lose peace when we win the war? And then it started that. And then Taliban took power for the first time. And then Al-Qaeda. And then went on until 9-1-1. And yeah. that was the beginning of new phase. So to conclude that part with you, that lack of vision <clears throat> and was one of the reasons that we did not reach our goal, which was winning the war and peace. Yes. If you win the war and lose peace, you lose both. So many, so many wonderful leadership lessons in there that we've just talked about of, you know, have not having an end game in mind and, you know, being so committed to, we, Johnny, we talk a lot about having the end game in mind and then missing the opportunity to enjoy the journey, being so focused on the journey and not understanding the end mind. There's kind of, we're both of those kind of integrate here. Right. Let's come up to this. You mentioned 9-11 and Masood, our personal relationship together was rekindled, unfortunately. As I've told the listeners, I had the unbelievable pleasure of meeting you on an airplane several years before. And then when I tried to find you again, unfortunately, when I Googled you, I had no idea of the horrors that you experienced um, of the lion being assassinated and you sitting right next to the lion when he was assassinated and then you were so horribly injured. I, without, you know, going, there's a lot of links that will provide for that story. There's a story out there called the path to nine 11, which is a, I think it was on HBO and 
So we'll put all those links in where they can see that. But I, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about how that day, and it got lost in Johnny Mac. It got lost in our own. When our towers came down, we lost what happened to Masood and the lion because it happened two days before. But if you don't mind, I'd like to transition a little bit to that because that really forever changed your life and it changed Afghanistan's life. And just for the listeners, just a, a, little, a little review, two days before 9-11, I think it was September 9th, 2001, um, there were some, um, <clears throat> some people posing as journalists uh, in the camp of the Northern Alliance. They had been there for two weeks. Uh, Masood had been called by the lion to come with him and be with him. Uh, and uh, they had to get this interview out of the way. And, and um, uh, very tragically, these turned out to be terrorists and, uh, and they assassinated the lion. And, and our dear friend Masood was gravely injured. Yeah. It was a suicide bombing and <clears throat> Masood spent uh, <clears throat> months and years really recovering. So we'll give a lot more detail to that on the links. And I, rather than have you just kind of um, relive some of the pain of that, can you talk a little bit about how that uh, experience just kind of changed, not, not only Afghanistan, but you personally? Yes, we were in a very difficult war against Al-Qaeda and Taliban at that time. Commander was in the mountains. And uh, at that time, I was, I was going back forward to Afghanistan because it, I was an ambassador to India. And then Commander called me and I told me that come, come as soon as possible because we will have some talks that we should because every month I was there and I was surprised that why he called me because two weeks before I was there. And then he said, you have to come because so anyway, I rushed. I went there and uh, I think he said, if you're, if you're sitting, if you're standing, <laughs> run. If you're sitting, stand up and run. Come see me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I, no, you are very right. Thank you for reminding me that. I don't want to into details that it will take hours and hours. Yeah. But yeah. thank you for putting some something there. And that is like a, like a salt on a, on, a, on a barbecue, you know, and make yeah. it, make it, make it nicer. Anyway, that I reached to him. And it was north of the country, and uh, it was indeed uh, uh, very, very close to the Oxus River. And then maybe about half an hour, one hour walk to Oxus River, which is very famous in the history of mankind. Mm. Alexander the Great crossed yeah. that also. And uh, many others, Chinggis Khan and Timur Lane, all these what do you call them, great people or whatever, they were crossing that. We were there that night and Commander was, we started talking. It was a small room indeed, very small. And uh, he had put two mattresses there that we sleep there. And one small uh, mattress there for our bodyguard to be one there also. And uh, a beautiful night, John, a beautiful and uh, it was the beginning of autumn. And I, that is a different thing, which I never forget it. But so the stars, I was writing in my, my diary, you know, that, this, that, that night before sleeping, you know, uh, that uh, the stars are just hanging 
The stars are talking to me. They are so beautiful. They are just like beautiful girls coming and dancing for me. And I am alone here, not indeed, but amongst all those beauties. And uh, then I was writing, the Oxus River is going, running, tells the story of history, how Alexander the Great crossed it, how Tamar the Lane crossed it, how Chinese Khan crossed it, how Chinese crossed it, and why they crossed it. And I'm now with Commander Masood. We were not calling him at that time hero, but Commander. Yeah. And we were here. So that night, uh, when we talked about Al-Qaeda, about politics, about the world, about America, about help, how the, why they abandoned us, because America abandoned us totally. When we entered Kabul, America said, adios, bye-bye. Yeah. We don't know you. Yesterday, you were hero. Today, you are zero. Get out. Which was a kind of leaving friend halfway. And that's what happened 9-11. Anyway, that night, and Commander, after talking about the, all these things and told me that what we should do more, I said, I'm going to America, to other European countries, and I asked him if possible to give us help and if possible to reach us again, open their embassies, because all the embassies, and the, all these things. And, and uh, then it was about middle of the night. He told me that, Khalili said, I said, please, let's just stop talking politics. Let us open a poetry book and read it. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it was around maybe three o'clock in the middle of the night. I opened that. There was some book of a great poet of 800 years ago. His name is Hafiz. We mostly Afghans open it. Whatever comes, we say it's our omen, it's our future, which is superstition. But we, in, in a way, believe that. We open it and see whatever poetry comes. I say, this is your future. Or it is your, like you see the palm of someone, you know? This is your future, uh, you know, de destiny. Girls, boys, all, they open it, you know, and they read and say about their beloved. It comes, okay, I'll get married with him because office told me something in that, in that poetry. All symbolic. But that night we opened it. And a beautiful verse of that poem, poet came. Biyaki qasri amal saht sost bunyadast. Well, and another one, which I don't recall it now, which was really the meaning was that many nights come Many days go, many months appear, many years disappear. You too enjoy tonight because tomorrow you will not see each other again. Yes. Wow. Masood, if I might, I uh, have that quote and it said, oh, you two who are sitting together tonight, value this night. Yes. Many, many years will pass. Days will, days will go. Months will wow. disappear. Wow. You won't have this night again. Wow. Value it. Wow. And I think I, both of you are pretty stunned to have opened the book of Hevez to that page. Oh, John, thank you. Thank you very much.
Oh my oh. goodness. I, I should thank you a lot. Now, do you think that when Masood or the lion had asked you to come to meet him two days before his death, looking back, do you think it's possible that he had a premonition? No. No. No, 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 not at all. Because I told him that I cannot come because I go with my wife. You know, I, my wife go out and then she said, no, no, come, come. I did not have. But it's again the superstition, John, <clears throat> that always my father was not flying or going out of the country for a trip on Tuesdays. Tuesday was not a good day for my father to travel. That I believed also, I don't know why. And still I do believe. When Tuesday is something I go, I say, no, I cannot go. Then my son doesn't take a ticket for Tuesday for me. That day, I told my wife that, look, tomorrow is Tuesday, how I can fly. She said, no, don't worry. She doesn't believe in that. Go, go, don't worry. That was in my mind that why I did it on Tuesday before that happened. Though I told uh, Commander that day that I didn't want to come because it was Tuesday. He knew that already before. Tuesday. So that was something which was there. Otherwise, no. Okay. No, that night also, no. When I read this poetry, and that then both of us stand and you say, oh, what is this? Then I said, immediately, I said, no, no, come on. This is not something. This is something that, well, every morning is something like that. Every morning, a new day and all these things to give him more and more you know, more and more uh, inspiration or courage. And uh, so that happened the next day. I wasn't, and then he, he, I told him that I sleep in another room because we were just reading poetry and said, there's a friend, no, I, room, I sleep there because I, I sometimes I snore and, you know, and uh, <laughs> I, uh, which is a good thing anyway. <laughs> my, my wife doesn't like it, but anyway, when it happens. <laughs> And then uh, the morning, someone knocked my door and I said, well, his man was there with a, you know, with a cup of coffee, no, with coffee for me. And uh, 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 coffee at all times was called Nescafe, Nescafe, a small powder. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that Nescafe was there and they said, okay, this is for Commander I sent to you. And a bit of grapes. So, and I told him, ah, it's good that then commander entered. And then he said, let's go because journalists come today and we will have an interview with the journalists. I said, no, you go because I, uh, I, I, I'm okay and I come after my coffee. He said, no, no, let's go. So we went to another room and there, three, four people also were there. And then Commander and we sat together and then two boys came to make it very short. Two boys came. One was a little bit tall. One was, you know, a bit shorter, shorter. And then one was carrying a camera, John. And the other one was carrying a notebook or something. And then I, Commander told him, please sit and you know, as usual, you were said, sorry, you waited for 14 days and I was busy, this and that, all these things. And then the boy sat there, just one meter off Commander Masood. Commander was beside me. I was on his right side. And there again, I said, let me go because I, I take some shower if possible. And then 
there was a good uh, translator to translate, but he said, no, 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 no. So there I was uh, asking myself a little bit, why is insisting that? Because anyway, and then the boy sat there and the other one with a camera standing. There he, commander said, give me your questions. And then I answer. There was about 14 or 13 questions, but most of them were about Osama bin Laden. Mm. Why in France you talked against Osama bin Laden? Why you're fighting against him? Why you say I'm a moderate Muslim? Why you are this? All these whys, mainly about Osama and about Al-Qaeda. Commander didn't like the question, but anyway, he said, okay, let us answer. And the boy who was having the camera, I never forget that moment, that he looked at me and gave a smile, a poisonous one, which I never, ever since then forgot it, which was somebody is telling me something with a smile. I was, believe me, I was, what is this? What kind of smile is this? And then commander started to answer the first question. And the first question was, tell us a little bit about the situation. The minute he said, that is the situation, I was murmuring, whispering in the ear of commander that the situation, the bomb. So I saw very thick blue fire was coming toward us. Light or fire, I don't know. Very hot. And that's it. It looked to me as reaching to me like a year, but, but it was, of course, mm-hmm. half a second. And then in that moment, I don't forget because many times I said, I was in a quick shot. No, who has done this? What is this? I thought a rocket from outside has reached us. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because there was a small window. It was a small room, you know, a small window. And I was, the minute I was thinking, I mean, second, then I felt a, a, a hand on my chest. Like this, you know, we commandos. Mm. And then, there also I remember, because I said always that, oh, commandos. And that's it. And the fire. And then later people told me that when they rushed, that commander was there and the whole room was totally, you know, burnt. And I was reading Quran and, you know, that God is one, God is great and all these things. And then seeing the boys, I don't know, I don't remember, they tell me that, take care of the commander. And they reached commander. And later on, the man told me, Commander was said, no, don't, don't touch me. Take care of Halili. Mm. Take care of him first. Wow. And then I opened my eyes. I was in the helicopter. That was also a story how helicopter, you know, was there. Really, really uh, a miracle. And then I saw Commander there, a face with blood. Uh, hair, I remember, yes, bit of some white hair, and that's it. And then I opened my eyes. I was in Germany after five days because they had taken me to Tajikistan. Commander had died, 
And I was five days in Tajikistan without knowing, but talking very, very consciously to my wife and to my son, Mahmoud, but not knowing, not remembering at all. They were telling me before that I was talking so deep, so nice, so good, that even I told my, you know, that my son at that time, I know that that, uh, he was young, 22 years old, and said, son, come, 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 stand here. Your dad is dying. Okay, okay, dad. One thing I tell you, what happened to those boys? He said, those two were killed. I said, okay, son, I have forgiven them. Don't take revenge on my behalf. If you are in the army, fight against terrorism, not on my behalf, but on behalf of justice. That is something, you know, even now I cannot say it. How it happened, why I was so, God was so great. I believe in God, but not in religion, you know. Why God is so great that he put this in my heart to say that I have forgiven them, an Afghan, forgiving someone who has done until your son, son, I have forgiven. Don't take revenge on my behalf. And then my wife, ah, Suhaila, I know I'm in Northern. I don't remember. She told me. One thing I ask you, please, please tell me loudly. Okay, okay. If I have ever shouted loud at you, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Because you survived such a horrific bombing, has it ever made you think that there was a greater meaning to your life? People tell me this, no doubt, always. But I don't see it, you know. I became more humble. More believer, trying to, you know, to be if possible, if not good, at least not bad to people. And if possible, give a kind of good leadership for my people. When I go to the villages now, now I not enough honest on, to go to the villages and talk to the new generation and tell them what their mothers told me, fathers, hope. Don't be fanatic, be hopeful. That is, maybe I survived because of that. Not because, I don't know, what else God would have given me except this, to forgive those and to ask my wife, forgive me. Well, I have a theory. I don't know if this is a good one, but the blessings that you are giving the world now through your memories through your experiences, through you, you've, you've got all these notebooks and you started to put them together. Johnny, there's a, there's an unbelievable book called the whispers of war. Yes. And it is, um, and we'll make a link to it in our show notes and folks, if, um, I just highly, highly recommend it. I, you know, I I've known Masood for probably it's over 20 years now and still, when I read the whispers of war and I see the poetry, I see the stories, I see the letters to your wonderful wife and family. That's your legacy. That's what you're leaving the world as you're traveling the mountains in war-torn, uh, horrific scenarios that you're, you're giving the world hope 
through your words. So do you want to talk a little bit about the Whispers of War? Why you wrote it? What's it mean to you? And Thank you. Thank you very much. The way you talk to me, I'm, you know, I know that you're very good and, and Johnny is also very good. But I think that time you talk about me, John, you have got a mirror in your hand that you look into your own face and you talk to me. <laughs> and good things, when you talk to me, you see in your own face, in your own life. And uh, I'm so glad also that to see your friend there, the one who hired you. And Well, anyway, Whispers of War, I never thought one time I'd be alive and I publish it. When this happened to me, John, and I, was, I survived, I told my wife, never, ever show me my notebooks. I forget the past. God's sake, don't talk about past. Just talk about present. Don't tell me that what will happen to future. What I can do, I will do, but not with what I remember it. And when a minute I remember about past, it comes to those. You have to remember your past. It was wrong from my side that to say I, I don't remember it. It was wrong, totally. But my wife did not accept that. Said, okay, go on, Masood. But she was carrying always these notebooks with her, whether mm -hmm. we were in Kabul, in America, in Woodbridge, in, 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 in Hackensack, New Jersey. And, you know, <laughs> because my sons were born in Hackensack, New Jersey. So anyway. was Johnny. You were in Hackensack, Johnny. Where were you born, Johnny? <laughs> well, I was born in New York City, but I lived in Bergenfield, which is almost the next town from Hackensack. I know that. I remember it. I remember it. I, I, all my sons, of course, you know it. I don't want to bring that. When I talk sons, I always remember the one I lost it. You know, John, he was yeah. 30 years old that he died. And, yeah. you know, he had cancer in America. Anyway, oh, and uh, it happens anyway. But anyway, then... My wife was carrying these notebooks, John. And one night when I was ambassador to Spain, look, after a long time, I was, you know, I saw that my wife is not with me in the bed. I said, maybe I'm not feeling good. She has got another boyfriend or something. Let's go and find out. <laughs> this is Madrid and you know, it can, can happen. <laughs> I went up and I heard from behind the door sound of my wife reading the notebook to my son, Mahmoud. And I kept quiet. First, I was a little bit sad. How come you promised? And now you read this to my son? And I thought I should hear what is there. And a beautiful short story was there. And then, then I opened the door and said, I give up. I help you. So these whispers of war and these notebooks, wherever I was in Afghanistan, John, I had one friend, Donkey, another friend, my pen. Yeah. And that pen was a friend to write my heart to my beloved wife. Mm. Always I was writing to her. That, oh, my beloved, I am in the mountain. Look at the sky. It's like a hanging ocean. One day, I hope we both come here and have a Nescafe can you touch that? or mm. have, a, have a coffee that she, you know, she was in America back and forth. Have a, you know, and then I was writing. And then bring it back 
fast and give it to my wife because she was a refugee in Pakistan and go back to the mountains. My father was there. My mother was there. My kids were there. And then go back to Afghanistan. So she was keeping reading it first and then keeping it. And that night, I heard that beautiful short story that a boy is coming. I go to a mountain and there's a boy of seven, eight years old. And I were all very hungry and, you know, a lot of bombardment the day before and a lot of Russians were bombarding. And then after a month walking, I was reaching there by... And then that mountain was so high, it was summertime, but, uh, but snowing. And then I told the boy that, where is your dad? Can you give me a little bit of food? He kept quiet. Again, I said, hey, boy, what's your name? Kept quiet. Just, hey, I, okay, don't give me food, but what's your name? She went back and she said, Oh, I'm a good boy. Don't kill me. You killed my father last year. Don't kill me. I'm a good boy. I'm a good boy. Oh, my goodness. I hold him, kissed him, and said, then I heard a voice of her mother from the tent. Oh, okay, okay. We will send you some food. Don't worry. Last year, communist killed his father in front of him. This is why he's scared of the guns. No. I wrote in my diary, damn it, war. For this boy, he has lost a son, lost a, son, a father, whether a communist killed him or a mujahid, whether a kafir infidel or a faithful, he has lost his father. Oh God, one day stop this war, not just in my country, but in the world. That I entered and then my Son was translated that into English and became whispers of war, John. Amazing. Awesome. Absolutely hey, amazing. You've also um, said that, uh, you know, when you talk about something that's comforting, I found something that you said where poetry is comfort. It's an interior way of remembering truth and celebrating beauty, no matter what the external circumstances. Do you think that, you know, Poetry has helped you in any way throughout your life. Thank you very much. You're a poet, the way you talk. <laughs> that's, the, that's probably the last thing to catch. That's the that? new name, Johnny the Poet. I like it. Oh, my goodness. You are carrying your heart in every minute with you. Amen. That is so important. When I was giving a speech in Washington some years, 10 years before, Defense Department or where, and I told the boys, when you go to Afghanistan, don't forget, or anywhere in the world to fight, don't forget one thing, your heart. Mm -hmm. Take it. Mm -hmm. Because you will have your heart, and you will take care of those who are in need of being alive. Mm -hmm. Anyway, poetry has been a part of my life when I was born because my father was poet. And when I was a boy and seven years old, I wanted to read you Afghanistan and reading poetry in that program for kids. And I was reading not bad, nicely, because they liked it. You know, a boy of seven years old reading poetry, of course, it sounds beautiful, yeah. whatever you... And then I was reading in the mornings always, with some exceptions, of course, poetry. 
And in the mountains, I was carrying a book of poetry with me and reading poetry. Because what you said, it gives you comfort. Because in the war, you suffer. Yes. A lot of pain. You need some peace. When especially you write to your beloved, you are in your country, around you night angels, around you, you know, some, some deer, around you some beautiful birds, around you the few tulips, narcissus, and you are sitting there, and all of a sudden, a plane comes rushing and bombard you, not just you, but also those, those nightingales and birds around you. They cannot tell you that they had war. And they were telling me one thing, write in your book and read poetry and write about me too, about nightingales, about my life. If you do not know me, I have got also a beloved, I'm nightingale. And the tulip is my beloved. And in the night, I see the moths come around me. And I like it. So, John, poetry has been always a peaceful pain for me. <laughs> that in a war you have that and you read it. And what happened, I was not a poet, which I just mentioned here. And uh, when I lost my son, I don't know how. One morning, early in the morning, I was reading poetry. But then I took the pen. And it started the first piece of poetry in my life. And that was indeed not bad, but beautiful. Mm. When I was reading it, I say, well, then I sent it to people and my friends in you London. Sent a great man. <coughs> yeah, you sent, sent it, it to, to me. You. Yes. Beautiful. And they, they translated that into English, which is difficult yeah. to translate from one language to another. Yes. But now, so this is poetry. Please go on. Masood. For, we'd be remiss, Johnny and I, we're, we're so thankful that you joined us. We'd be remiss if we didn't ask you. Our listeners are listening. I'm sure that their hearts are wide open and their minds are wide open. What advice can you give us? And We're listeners from all over the world. Um, some of us probably are in some war-torn areas now and some places near Europe. And But what can we do? Your country, I remember sitting on a plane with you and you started off talking to me about for 25 years, there's no infrastructure for schools. There's no, my children had the benefit of going to school. And I just sitting there talking to you, I was realizing how vastly different my world was from your world and my children's world was from your children's world. What can we do to help? Uh, are there agencies? Are there um, are there things that you believe strongly in that others could support? What can be done? Well, thank you first that you're thinking about this, which is so important. Americans are generous people. I hope I'm right. They have indeed generously given to the world, the, I mean, the taxpayers of America, their money for Africa, for Asia, for those starving to have a piece of bread. That piece of bread carries a message. We're all one. We're all one body. If a part of the body is painful, the other parts feel it too. I'm in California, but I think of Kabul, 
I think of Africa, and I give money, and even send volunteers to help them. For that, there are many organizations which I'm not very familiar with them. During the war, we had organizations who were coming in Afghanistan and helping us, like Doctors Without <laughs> Frontier, yeah, like Swedish Committee, like Red Cross. They were coming and they were going into Afghanistan and helping my people in the difficult, the most difficult situation. Going to the mountains of Afghanistan by horses, by donkeys, these young boys and girls. I couldn't believe that, that how they go and their fathers allow the mothers to go to the mountains and reach to a poor and give them some help. And, you know, doctors even, medical doctors. So if you find those yourself, that will be very good. And I think UN also has done a lot. UN organization, which always I tell them if they listen to me, that if by chance, if you can lobby there, the United Nations, and if you have your own organizations, have one special, whatever you call it, to help, NGO to help Afghanistan and the neighbor countries and Ukraine, these places, they are in danger. That will be good for you. And I always tell them that if possible, if Americans, you know, government, they listen to that they, in each province, we have got 36 provinces. In each province, if they indeed get 1,000 boys and give them uniform of peace mm. and they help their own people with some salaries, one or $200 per month, their own people in the 34 provinces, and then channel the help that goes from you to those boys of peace and help to those people who are in need. In that case, United Nations, for the first time, will have an army of peace with the people of that country, not from bringing from other countries. Yeah. If we bring from other countries, they are killed, they will be difficult, they are hard. But if you indeed get 1,000 or more from each province, it will be not more than five to six million a month, dollars a month for UN. It's not that difficult. In a year, no. it will be 60 million dollars. And then those 1,000, 2,000 boys and girls even will be very, very proud. We are for it, fighting for peace. For the first time, Afghanistan will be held an army which is for peace not for war. And Very that well will said. help people in this country to say that, okay, now those 1,000 people know very well their provinces. They know who has not been given salaries because of Taliban. I'm not talking about here against Taliban. I wish you were telling about what Taliban look like, you know, what they will be like. So whatever they are, now they're in Kabul. What we should do that, we should help the common people to not die. From one hand, we should help those who are fighting, if possible. I do not know. I wish there was no war. From another hand, we help the common people to survive. And through those 1,000 people, you can not just give money for food, but for pen, for paper, for the schools. They go to school and even for the teachers. So through United Nations and your lobby, you can do a lot in Afghanistan and other countries. Thank you. Isn't it the same? Isn't it the same message, Johnny, that began so many years ago? Is that by 
helping the people, establish the people. Um, and that's where the power of freedom comes from for the people of Afghanistan. It's so well said. Masood, we are so grateful to you, so indebted to you. I'm, I, I wrote you a text the other night, and I just want to read it. Um, for our listeners, because I, I really feel I had watched the path to 9-11 again, and I saw the horrific and horrific scenarios that you've lived through and your families lived through. And I just said, you're an incredible man to have lived through and survived these incredible inhumanities by man. And still you have such hope for mankind. Um, you're an absolute inspiration. I was hopeful for you that we would translate uh, well, and and I'm reminded by <clears throat> another phrase, Johnny Mac, that was actually said at my father's funeral, which I really love. And it just really came back to my heart today is words that are spoken from the heart and to the heart of all who hear them. And you did such an unbelievable job today, speaking from your heart. And I'm so excited mm -hmm. to see the outcomes of that as those words enter the heart of everybody who heard them today. So Johnny, I'll let you say your good, your yeah, goodbyes, but Ma Masood, it's not goodbye. It's till I see you again, my friend. Yeah. Masood, you are a man, such a special man with such a big heart, despite of all the challenges you've been through in your life. Thank you so much for doing this with us. I thank you very much. I ended with a beautiful quatrain of Rumi. Rumi, the great poet, was from Afghanistan, was born in Afghanistan in the north and then lived in Turkey. He says, Baza, Baza, Haranche Hasti, Baza, Garkafero, Garkafero, Gapro, but Parasti, Baza, Indergehima, Dergehina, Midinist, Sadbar, Agartoba, Shikasti, Baza, come back, come back, whatever you are. Come back, a Muslim, a Hindu, fire worshiper, Christian Jew. Come back. I'm your Lord. My door is always open. Always for you. Even if you break your promises a hundred times, come back. Come back. Thank you. You're amazing. You are so amazing. Thank you, my friend. And thank you all for listening to Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.